Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack. I have Nina with me today. Hello, sister in Brooklyn. Hello, sister in London. So today, today we have today we have as our guest um, Christopher Guyver, who has written a book in about 2016 on the Second French Republic, and that was a political reinterpretation. But he's here today to talk to us about a new project, which is his work on Leopold I of Belgium. And um, we should probably immediately reassure the audience uh, that this is Uncle Leopold, if you've been watching any series on Victoria and Albert. <laughs> Not bad Leopold the Not second. Bastard Leopold who right, runs around exactly. the Congo treating it as right. his own private fiefdom and having it, people exactly. hands off and stuff. You've got it may it. come up later, but that's mm. not why we're here, is it, Christopher? Right. No, so, no. <laughs> so, so, Christopher, can you start by telling us um, a little bit about? I mean, we've many, many of uh, of us, if we we've read a little bit about Leopold the First, but um, I, I must say that uh, I know my introduction, embarrassingly, uh, was was coming to grips with him as he was depicted on assorted programs about yes. uh, Queen Victoria as yes. her yes. uncle and so on. So can you can you tell us more about Leopold, his early life, you know, where he's yeah. from and so on? Well, there's a lot. I think, first of all, him being the uncle of Victoria is important. OK, that is that is quite a big story. Um, so it's fair enough. I mean, to refer to him as Uncle Leopold. Now, he's. He's somebody who has a very much a sort of cosmopolitan career and upbringing. He's first of all a German prince, son of a duke. He becomes a, a British prince and ends up king of the Belgians. So that's three nationalities. He's a Russian general. He's a Coburg as well, isn't he? Yes. He's Albert's family. He is born in Saxe Coburg Saalfeld in the town of Coburg in, on the 16th of December, 1790. Yeah, so he like he has um, a foot in both camps, doesn't he? Because he's closely related to Albert, because Albert yes. and Victoria are essentially yes. cousins, aren't they? So he is. Yes, his his oldest brother Ernest, whose birthday it was yesterday, was Albert's father, and his oldest sister Victoria was Victoria's mother, and it's via his sister that the name Victoria is introduced into the British royal family. Um, it wasn't, um, it, you know, it didn't, it didn't, it was a foreign, it's also introduced into British culture. 
by Victoria. You don't get many Victorias born before 1819. Um, also, Leopold is connected with the Romanov dynasty in Russia, as his older sister, Julia, or Yulshen, whatever, married Grand Duke Constantine in 1895. Bigger pardon, 1795. I made that mistake the other day. Um, there's also, I mean, Helen Rappaport's writing a biography of her, which should be published, I think, early this year. So the Coburgs are very much connected already to some of the leading families in Europe, especially the Romanovs. And Leopold's great uncle was a field marshal who, um, but the, and this I think has a great impact both on Victoria and Albert as well, and possibly on nasty Leopold II, is that before Leopold's birth, the, the duchy of Saxe Coburg went bankrupt. Ah. And it's this very small area. I mean, sneery British historians like to say oh, it's the same size as the Isle of Wight. I mean, one actually might be slightly more original, say so it's the same size as Rutland. It's a small area. Now, so what, well, part of me thinks, so what, the Habsburgs came from a small area originally, Habsburg, which is now Switzerland. Um, you know, the Hohenzollerns started off as burghers of uh, Nuremberg. And also, you know, so Prussia began as a small area too, Brandenburg. So um, there's a slight sort of sneery attitude that often British historians make about Coburg. Um, I mean, but this goes right back to Thackeray. You know, he liked to satirise Coburg as the pump and English states. So that's a sort of that's a sort of chitty chitty bang bang world mm. of of of, um, of sort of. I feel like the slipper and the rose as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a sort of fairy tale. It's a sort of, yeah, rather naff, fair, yeah. Sort of tins tinsely fairy tale Disneyland, but about the same size as Disneyland as well. So it's really, um, so there's a little bit of a sort of inferiority complex, perhaps, but also a great sense of dynastic entitlement. Mm. There's you know, huge, this, huge um, ambition as well with Leo, oh, yeah, isn't there? Definitely. And I think. I'm going to say this as an eldest brother, so I, I don't quite have the insight here, but Leopold's very much a younger brother. So you have a sort of very large family. He's, all, he's sort of piggybacking already. You know, he's, he's, people know, people within sort of the dynasties of Europe know of him already. For example, um, Tsar Alexander Russia, ha, sort of enrolls him in, in the Russian army. Um, one day after Leopold's birth, the Holy Roman Emperor um, Leopold II is actually present in Coburg and sort of becomes his godfather. So we did, we have this quite interesting tension between something which is very much a small state and it's a dynastic network. And I think Leopold and Din's dynasticism cannot be separated. And of course, the interesting thing is he's born in 1790, so that's 15 months and two days after the fall of the Bastille. Oh, interesting. And one thing he's always doing, though, he's always saying that he always seems to confuse the dates. He always seems to think the French Revolution broke out in 1790, which is almost a solipsistic way of saying, everything changed when I was born. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I suppose we all think that, but... Interesting. But you have this, he's always, so he's very much aware that he is um, an endangered species hmm. of, of royalty. And, and indeed, um, you know, he's his early years are spent very much impoverished. Well, I mean, not not. I mean, when I say impoverished, that's very much a relative term. Yeah. You know, he's brought up in a house. He was born in a house rather than a palace. 
which I think a lot of impoverished people in the 1790s may not think that was particularly impoverished. Um, but by his adult, by his teenage years, of course, um, Napoleon, the wars have, wars broken out with France, starting starting right way back in 1792 when he was two, but it only really comes to have made an impact on him after the Battle of Austerlitz, when the French troops actually occupy Coburg. And his, his older brother, Ernest, goes to join the, the Russian army. And this comes to this comes quite interesting. This is when the, he starts to, when Leopold is actually sent over to Paris almost as a hostage under the tutelage of Napoleon. Hmm. Now, this is where things get quite interesting. Now, I mean, Napoleon had an eye, had, he quite liked handsome young men. I don't. I, I can't. I'm not going to go any further with that. Yeah. But he certainly. You know. He was also possibly cynical enough to know that you know, good-looking young men enhance ones. If you you know, give gives one sort of glamour. Gives him. Well, could give him glamour points. Right. Especially if you're not one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, and. He described him much later on, and I think he was stirring, actually. I mean, I can, might come back to this later. When Napoleon got married to Charlotte, he said to Lascaux, Napoleon on St. Helena, said, oh, yes, you know, Leopold was the most beautiful purse creature in the Tuileries Palace, hmm. um, which hmm. is... And he, then, then Napoleon adds, well, you know, he, he did ask me to be his ADC, if, I, if he could be his ADC. Now, Napoleon hmm. must have known that that would get back to Britain. Yeah, definitely. And really you know could could be damaging um in fact it was that napoleon asked leopold to be his adc hmm. but i um, mean napoleon lying is not exactly um you know it's napoleon, not a spoiler was, is it napoleon was i mean I, whatever I, I don't want to go off on a bony pan tangent but napoleon was um very much a master politician absolutely and so how does Leopold get himself untangled then from well, napoleon and france while his brother is Fighting with the Russian well, army. The answer is the um, Treaty of Tilsit. Mm -hmm. okay. So Ernest now, so that that's all cool, in the sense that um, Napoleon, Ernest can now come to Paris too. They're taken under the wing of by Napoleon's wife Josephine, mm -hmm. and again, a lot of history books say very knowingly, "Ah, oh, yes, well, Leopold had an affair with Josephine's daughter Hortense." Um. And Hortense at the time was Queen of Holland, quite unhappy with her husband, King Lucien. I think it's while it's tempting to think that the king, the future king of the Belgians, had an affair with the Queen of Holland, I think it's actually I don't think it's possible. For one thing, we know that he fancied um, Hortense's lady in waiting, Louise Cochelet. Hmm. Um, and I think he was quite young, and I, I don't know, maybe stretching a little bit to see Hortense as a sort of Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> Cougar. Um, I mean, it's not. I mean, of course, he he was a young man, yeah, you know, adolescent, away from his mother. You know, maybe you know, it's not it's not beyond. We don't know. He may well have sown his wild oats there. Um, but this is again one thing that history books like to repeat. You know, he, he definitely had an affair with Hortense. Mm. Um, he didn't, but. Well, I, I don't think he did. There's no evidence. Call me Mr. Boring, but I, I'd like to have a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Of, Nobody uh, wants your facts and logic, Christopher. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. um, but in Christopher. terms of what he is going to do, we've already mentioned his um, dynastic ambition. Yes. Uh, he's, yes. he's nearly king consort of 
written before yes, well, Albert, isn't he? Yes, Albert. indeed. Yeah, well, this is what this is. Well, again, the, one of the things that the Napoleonic Wars does, in a way, is bring dynasticism again to the forefront because Napoleon's very keen on marrying people. Once Napoleon's defeated in 1814, first time round, Leopold goes over Channel with Tsar Alexander to visit England. And uh, uh, now, it's possible, no, so again, it's possible, I mean, he may, he did have his eye partly on the, on the main prize, which is, of course, the heir to the throne, Charlotte. Charlotte, right, Princess Charlotte. Who is um, the daughter of the Prince Regent. She's the only daughter. Um, her parents are very much estranged. She managed to do it once. She isn't she? She is the future of the monarchy. She's the future of the monarchy. And he... It is planned that she marries the Prince of Or the, the Prince of Orange, and she's not she's not keen on that. Partly because she doesn't want to leave this country, and think one thing the Regent liked to do was send people abroad to get rid of them, mm. um, which is probably slightly nice than throwing them out of windows. But uh, <laughs> there's always a sort of um, plot, no idea of sort of send people over to Hanover just to get rid of them. But mm. Charlotte rather slowly falls in love with Leopold. And Leopold, at this time, is very much a sort of, again, I suppose it's part, part of literature, you know, he's very much a sort of um, admirer of beautiful women. He's, you know, he, he tends to be very, very cool, in a very, very sort of, we would call it creepy, but it's very, very sort of courtly way. He gets a bit of a reputation for this. But um, it takes Charlotte about... Once Leopold has left the country, gone back to Coburg, Charlotte then decides he's the one. And anyway, he comes. And we, and we, this is when I start to really pick up the trail because I've, I've been reading her letters to him. I rediscovered in the 1990s. Wow. wow. And she's got the worst handwriting ever. <laughs> um, and believe me, I, I feel mean, like our friend Carolyn will challenge you yeah. and say, Have you met yeah. Princess uh, Amelia? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, she's, she's up. Well, she's up very much on top. No, she, she's a contender. Yeah. No, also the, with the, Queen Alexandra, where everything looks like a magic eye picture. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, they don't all write, write like George V or George VI. No, um, absolutely. I mean, Leopold's writing is actually quite clear, but Charlotte then writes in this sort of very, very in this scrawl, infantile French, because hmm. uh, Leopold can't speak English. Uh, of course not. So yes. French is their common language. Yeah. She writes. And in at the moment, I'm sort of going through it, and it's sort of. Um, it's pretty hard work because the thing is that Leopold crosses the channel in 1816 to meet his betrothed. The regent decides, and his mother, Princess Charlotte, decides, oh, what, what's the best precedent for this? And they go back to the early 18th century and discover that when last time a, um, a fiancé came over the channel, he and he and the two betrothed, betrothed had to stay apart until the marriage <clears throat> under sort of chaperoned lockdown interesting which is great for me because i can read the letters right but um there I, mean, I think they are pretty much desperate for you know but you get, you get sort of daily letters with needy needy neediness from charlotte's side i'm sure i'm sure leopold's also got a very bad toothache we can discuss his health a bit later but i mean by the time they get married second of may 1816 um he becomes very popular. I mean, I think this is partly when you start to get Coburg places and Coburg all over this country. You tend to get sort of right. the, pub, the Royal Coburg, et cetera, et cetera. Right. 
Um, so this this does make him a bit of a megastar. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and these are the sort of this is the golden. These are they become a sort of golden couple. You know, I mean, we've all. I mean, we've all. I mean, obviously, I don't. I don't need to make any um, comparison, as it were, between modern. You know, it, it happens every single time in this country. Right. Anyway, the royal, royal family gets married. You get sort of. So this time it's Leopold and Charlotte mania. Interesting. Yeah. Now, of course, I think they actually become a little bit sort of smugged married. <laughs> there is, um, they're very, very sort of. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, no, I'm very happy. Yeah. You know, very happy for them. I mean, Charlotte right. was very unhappy. Leopold is a bit of a sort of was very much a wanderer. He didn't really have a basis as a younger son, even of a sort of princely right. family. You usually are a bit sort of um, at a well. You have to find your role, right? And I mean, for example, the old Vic was open. Was meant to be open. The theatre in West London was meant to be opened by them, but they decided they couldn't turn up and do it. So an alderman had to do it. Which was spoiled. Which was spoiled the day for everybody but him, um, because it's his. It's his name on the foundation stone. Um, Charlotte friend dumps close friend called Mary Elphinstone, Mercer Elphinstone. Um, so there, there's a little bit of sort of again sort of smug married activity in that respect. She suffers one miscarriage, which makes everybody sad. Now um, and then she decides to uh, when she's pregnant again. She asks a gentleman called Sir James Croft to be her male midwife. Mm. Now, this was possibly the worst decision she ever made in her life. No. Oh, dear. I mean, because I mean, having a royal doctor was more or less a sort of um, trying to commit suicide, I think. Mm. You're going to get, and the crowning tragedy is at Claremont, Claremont House in Surrey on the 5th, at nine o'clock in the evening on 5th of November, 1817, her baby is born dead, stillborn. Mm, okay sure. fine okay i mean that yeah. it happens yeah you can get another one unfortunately the um sir james croft the male midwife i thought it was a good idea that um women sort of before childbirth should be starved oh god so this was so um <laughs> so he decided the best thing was made to don't give her any food starve her get to the and then look then of course five and a half hours after the stillbirth charlotte herself dies mm. um, Leopold was asleep at the time. I mean, the labour had lasted 50 hours. Oh, God. For so, sure. again, without chloroform, when you know, this, that's that done later on. Yeah. Um, and everything has gone. Yeah. All his hopes. He was possibly going to be, he could have been, as, as Alex said, he could have been Prince Consort or even Queen right. Consort. The title wasn't confirmed. Right. He could have had a sort of role. For himself, instead, this is rather sort of Byronic thing. You know, he's only twenty. He's 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 nearly twenty-seven, which is quite a lot younger than I am. You know, it's quite a lot. It's he's just everything just evaporated. Right, right. With the death of Charlotte, he no longer yeah. has a role. Yeah. He's the youngest son, and so yeah, yeah. What 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 is he going to do next? Um, yeah, that's I. I knew that she had died after a miscarriage. I didn't realize yeah. the circumstances were yes. so were so horrific. Yes. Um, well, well yeah. there's a tragic coda to that because Sir James right. Croft was rather upset about it. You know, and, <laughs> One um, would hope so. Um, a few months later, 
he was present at another high as a sort of high society birth. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was exactly the same symptoms. Oh dear. Yeah. So he decided to go into another room and shoot himself. Mm. Gosh. She did, which would not have been much help to the mother. Not really, no. Mm-mm. Um yeah. and I mean Leopold just thought he was a bloody fool. I mean, there was no I mean, again, he was very much at the mercy of I mean as all royalty was, uh, very much at the mercy of 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 royal doctors who are more yes. more, more like courtiers. Right. Really right. the members of the medical profession. Yeah. Um so we get I mean this is our, which this is comes to the period which I think is one of the most difficult bits for me to research mm. of Leopold's life. The sort of between Charlotte and his sort of and the late 1820s. He's basically a sort of youngish man with a huge grant from fifty thousand pounds from Parliament a year. Mm. Um, and all he can do also what he does is basically travel the continent I was going to say how sorry does he feel for himself I mean the money would help incredibly sorry yeah um no I I, no he's very good at (laughs) self-pity because Um, it's like yeah you've got 50,000 a year which is a hell of a lot of money at the time you're going to be king of England yeah well, I think also, I mean, I think it's a slight sense of, the, well, this was my due anyway. And I've got, I've got the large house in Surrey, in Claremont. I've got, you know, all the positions. I mean, he asked the regent to make him a royal highness, and the regent does that. If that's Claremont School now, I played netball against them. <laughs> yes, I went, I had a look around there in 2019. Is it, a, is it that the school? It now? is, yes. It's oh, a yeah. Fancourt School, which is um, Christian scientist school um so it, it belonged to the royal family up until the ni- early 1920s um but it's i mean the, for, for i mean you can still see the room where charlotte died as a classroom but it's been kept pretty much gosh as it is so it does give one a sense i mean it is also i mean i could go i mean i, I mean, well, I did ask, I was a bit disappointed. I said, are there any ghost stories? <laughs> you know, you would have thought being a boarding school as well, there'd be ghost, uh, ghost stories. Sure? No. So no. I'm a bit, no. I'm a bit no. nervous about that. How but, disappointing. Yeah. So here he is. He's, he's now a royal highness. He yes. has a fantastic house. He has an enormous allowance every yes. year. And um, you said it was it was challenging to try to figure out what exactly he was doing other than yeah. traveling. Yeah. When does he resurface in the public record? When were you able to then well, sort of find out yeah. what he does after the travels, after the mourning period and so on and so forth? Well, he's often you get quite a lot of snide comments in the British press during this period. Why is he traveling? Because he, mm-hmm. she was really popular, wasn't she? Charlotte was really popular. He was, he was popular on the back of her, right? Yeah. As it were. But now um, he's freeloading off the British public, and he's nothing to do with us. Yeah, okay. basically. Um, again, it's, again, it's this idea of a sort of. But also, the other thing, I think it's just this resurfacing thing of the royals, royals actually being foreign. I think as well. Like, had the child survived? Yeah. And that's another thing. But now he, yeah. just, like, I can see how a certain portion of the British public would have been like, well, he's just a parasite now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, there yeah. is a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of radicalism at the time. You know, this is a period yeah. of 
this is the man living on 50,000 year. Then you have the Peterloo massacre. Exactly. Yep. Happening mm-hmm. at the same time. You have the Cato Street conspiracy. You have, um, I mean, there's a lot of unpopularity of, um, of uh, George the Fourth. Right. So, right. so Leopold, I mean, we get, we get stories about affairs he has with various society women. I mean, one of them was a sort of adventurous called Jane, Jane Digby. Um, mm. I contacted her biographer and she said, no, heard nothing about it. So again, um, you get, um, he does actually write to his brother-in-law saying, you know, since Charlotte's died two years ago, I really need it. <laughs> and how charming. I mean, well, I mean, he doesn't, I, mean yeah. I, I, I can't, I, I, I put it probably more crudely than he does. Yeah, but still. But he's no. basically still got a, a sort of young man's libido. Right, right. And again, you're not, I mean, again, there's, I can't find. Right. I mean, simply because in those days you didn't. No. So, I mean, and I suppose you, you would verbally, I'm sure, but there's not much written. No, of course not. Yeah, um, very challenging, I would imagine. To he had to be writing letters to someone, wouldn't he? Saying, "I banged her now, I've banged yeah. her now, yeah. I've banged her." <laughs> I just had a look, by the way, and it's the equivalent now of six million a year. His allowance, Woo! yeah, yeah. So, not bad, not plenty, bad. plenty of plenty of cash on. Him. Yeah, but I think also, I think at the time there was this. Um, you get it in, in Byron or like Pushkin. This idea of the sort of well, Balzac, early Balzac, the idea of the sort, no, the sort of the the, the shattered aristocrat, mm, yeah, right, the moody, moody, brooding, right, right, which we all Sad. find great now. We call them romantics for a reason, but yeah. I guess if you are subsisting on peanuts and watching yeah. this foreign royal going round on six million British pounds, yeah, a year, you're not going to see them in quite such a romantic light, are you? Um, Definitely yeah. not. No. Um, and also, I think one of the problems is also he was of a personality type, and we all know them. And indeed, apologies to those of you who'll be listening. <laughs> he was somebody who's quite quiet, but not necessarily shy. Ah, interesting. Okay. And of, I think often, okay, I, I, forgive me if I'm sort of generalizing or being deep, trademark, but often people who are loud and extrovert and bouncy are often quite threatened. By the quiet person who's not scared of them, yeah, but very obviously sitting there taking note. And well, this is it. That... it belies the kind of his future as a puppet master, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and you know, often if you're if you're sort of seen to be up to something, then people are always going to be thinking it's sort of like it's a sort of Peter Mandel Peter Mandelson effect. You know, he must always be up right. to something. Right. Right. Um, but I think. I mean, this, but we do have this really, really odd episode in the 1820s about um, his mistress, Carolina Bauer. Mm. Um, she, a lot of the sort of information we have about Leopold in this period comes from her memoirs, which were published mm-hmm. posthumously. Mm-hmm. And on the face of it, it is a very, very odd story. Carolina was the niece of Leopold's right hand man, Stockmar. He was a Coburger, he was trained as a doctor, but basically became a sort of factotum lawyer. He was played by David Suchet many years ago um, in a drama about Victoria, opposite Jonathan Price, who played Leopold. Um, 
But the story goes, because Carolina, Carolina was an actress. And Leopold was traveling in Berlin in the late 1820s, and he saw her on stage. And he saw this sort of rather large buxom woman with blonde curls. And he's struck by the resemblance with Charlotte. Mm. And from a surviving portrait painting of her in the early night, from sort of about that period, you can definitely see it. So, her, so the account goes, he took her back to England with her hmm. and gave her Charlotte's dress to, um, to wear. I mean, Charlotte's own biographer, Anne Stott, says it's rather like, it's rather like Rebecca. Definitely. You see, you know, and, and then, but the thing is, then it all turns sour. Leopold keeps her in a little cottage and she, Charlotte discovers that the sort of this moody, this sort of this unhappy aristocrat isn't somebody as sort of as alluring or as enticing. It's actually very boring. <laughs> and all he likes to do is um, do what was called drizzling, which is feeding in scrap metal, like oh, wow. sort of like um, into a machine, which will whir away, and then you better produce metallic objects. Now, for example, he's able to get a sort of recycle sort of metal from epaulets and make it into a sort of soup terrine for Queen Victoria. Interesting. To give it to uh, as a present for her confirmation. I... No such item exists in the royal collection. I have checked. But, um, and it's from Charlotte Bower we get stories about his sort of relationships with um, people like Jane Digby and the, the, the rude nicknames that George IV called him. Of course, George IV called, famously calls Leopold Le Marquis de Peu à Peu, the Marquis of Little by Little, um, which, which again is often quoted, but as far as I can see, that's the, own, that's the earliest source we have for that. Interesting. Um, and the problem is, part of me is a bit suspicious about this, these memoirs because what, for one thing, there's too much of the fairy tale right. about them. There's right. too much. There's too much um, you know, kissing a prince and finding a frog about it. It, fit, it fits too much in with the sort of um, libels, libel, the sort of li libel literature. Right. Get. Um, and but there's a, there's a big but. There's, there's a bit of a but here. One thing that these. If it was done for profit, then Carolina did it very much the wrong way around because they only published a year after her death. Right. In the 1870s, was so after Leopold's death. And mm. also, I feel that I owe it sort of partly to Charlotte's memory. No, it's a big part. Freudian slip there, Charlotte, I said. Carolina's memory that, um, you know, because she's somebody from, from a lower social class, why should I dismiss her off out of hand? Right, right. Um, and... The thing is, when Leopold remarried, his, his wife Louise wrote to her mother, he does this weird thing called drizzling. Ah, interesting. Right. Now, that's not, that's not a smoking gun exactly. No, but it's interesting um, that it's mentioned by two yeah, different... Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I think if Carolina did make it up, then it, she, it may have been gossip from within the family, from the Stockmar family. Right. Or if she did actually live in England, it'd probably be from the German-speaking servants of Claremont. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, that, 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 but it is, it is an odd story. I have found no contemporary evidence that she went to England. Hmm. Um, he never mentions her. And I've read a large amount of his private correspondence now. Hmm. So it is a mystery. Um, it, may, it may stay as a mystery. Interesting. I don't know. 
Now, because there is at some point, does she claim or it makes its way into various historical sources that he actually marries her and therefore she is his Morganatic wife. Yes. They were married, but no issue. Yes. That marriage would ever be considered for, you know, for for any sort of a a throne. So that's that's another little interesting twist to the story, isn't it? Again, there's no no certificate. Right. Um, Never hard evidence at all. And she says that no, he he would he would have made a countess Montgomery. Right. Which again, that was the king's prerogative, not his. Exactly. Of course, if Leopold was utterly cynical, then (laughs) he could have just told her Tell her whatever you want till she puts it. Yeah, but, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks, well, would he have been that stupid? I mean, because his, bro- his brother had also suffered from a sort of libelous pamphlet ah. in the 1820s. Okay. And Leopold really tore a strip off him. Interesting. Now, you know, just because one person's stupid doesn't stop you being stupid. <laughs> that is true. That um, is true. But Again, this is a man you know, who's famed for his caution. And I just don't, I mean, again, we're talking about sex here. So that can affect, especially, you know, with, especially but not uniquely men. Right. Um, which, no, we, no. So, that, that, so again, it's very much an open question and I remain agnostic. Mm, interesting. So at this point, he's been, you know, the, the, there is a, a number of interesting stories about him, a yeah. number of mysteries about him. How is it that he ends up taking the throne of Belgium? Right. Um, well, first of all, he turns down the throne of Greece. <laughs> Didn't <Right>. everyone? <laughs> <laughs> Unstable. He was sure. Yeah, exactly. Leopold was the, no, he was the trendsetter. Okay. He was the proto, he was the er, he was the you know, first edition refusee okay. of the throne. Right. Um, and he regretted it for the rest of his life. Huh. Um, which is, it, again, this is a romantic thing. You know, he wanted to be right. um, in the Greek Isles. This he ever got to Greece was Naples. Mm. But he constantly goes on and on and on about, and I wish I'd gone there. But um, then seeing the trouble they had with that yeah. throne, I mean, uh, still my my all time favorite George V diary entry yeah. is King Alexander of Greece is yes. dead. He was bitten by a monkey. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, um, well, even before the arrival of um, King Otto from Bavaria in eighteen thirty three, yeah, um, mm-hmm. Kabbalistrias. Who had been Russian foreign minister and then became sort of um, chief of the provisional government? He was murdered. But it's like, why would you want a throne in the Balkans? The Balkans is a shit show. Yeah, I but, mean they're still lobbing monarchs out the window in Serbia in 1903. Yes. Well, I think Leopold liked the idea of having of being able to. I mean, he he never he never underestimated his abilities. Yeah. Um. He and I think compared with with what happened with Belgium, where he was basically. It was, effect, it was basically given. Basically, everything was settled before he arrived. Right. He would have quite liked to have done a bit of the settling. Yeah. Ah, okay. He would have liked to have been able to determine what sort of government mm. he would rule, what sort of constitution he would have, what sort of powers right. he would have. Um, 
It's and... not bad, though, is it, the Belgian? I mean, it's constitutional monarchy, but, I mean, it, there's command of the armed forces as soon as a war breaks out. There's yeah. like, it's not like they're a puppet, is it? No, but, I mean, it's a, it's a continual, it is a continual complaint of all monarchs, of, oh, why don't I have more power? Yeah. Of course. Because most of you are congenital idiots and inbreeds, so that's why. <laughs> also, it is your people insuring themselves. Yeah, but it's also, but yes. also, no. Why? I mean, I think also. Um, again, one of the one one of the things about monarchy, you know, you, if, unless you abdicate, you know, you do the same job every day. Yeah, and right. you don't get to quit until you die. Yeah, yeah. and but so, but Leopold had these sort of abdication fantasies throughout his life. Interesting, and I, I mean, I, I I don't think it's just a political weapon. Hmm. I mean, if you children don't behave, I'll abdicate, and then you'll be sorry. I don't. I don't think. <laughs> oh well, like Kitchener in the First World War. Yeah. <laughs> oh, ah, yes. yes. <laughs> Several times. I got to ask you, um, because it, it, he's ambitious, and he's not done with the British throne. And okay, he's not going to sit on it now. No. Um. No. But he does get rampantly involved. Can you just sort out the timeline for me? So, yes, he's Victoria's uncle yeah. and he's going to have a huge influence there and we'll get to that. But yeah. at what point does his sister go in and marry Victoria's sister? Right. Is that after he's kind of his situation has fallen apart with Charlotte or is it in tandem with it? Well, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Charlotte, um, when she marries him, she becomes she's she 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 becomes very excited about being a Coburg, right? She loves the fact because Leopold's got this big family, big bustling family. They're all writing to each other. They actually get on with each other generally, whereas of course Hanoverians hate each other. So Charlotte loves the idea of being a Coburg, and then she thinks, "Oh, my uncle Edward, Duke of Kent. Why doesn't he marry Leopold's sister?" Okay. Then then now, so she does a bit of nagging. Now I don't know about you, but usually. I think when when people start nagging you to uh, to marry somebody, um, one sort of ignores them. Really, it's, it's surely if it's in Double their step. better interests, then it's not right for you. Yeah, right. but it's sort of oh, you know, you make such a great couple, and you no, know, my usual answer is no, go to hell. Um, but <laughs> once once Charlotte dies, um, that's taken away the baby and her. That's that's two generations, right. That blows up the whole line of succession, doesn't up, it? Yeah. The whole line. So of now succession. you're on to George, because George the Fourth, like you say, has only managed to to yeah. stick yeah. it in his queen once. It's a disaster. Yeah. Um, once effectively, and now yeah. it's kind of blown up with all his siblings. And yes. One right. of the siblings is Edward Duke of Kent. Yes. But so, so there's, there's a race to the ma- to get married. So you've got Edward and William, Duke of Clarence, future right. William the Fourth. They get married on the same day. Um. We also get the Duke of Sussex can't got married morganatically. The Duke of um, Cumberland, to my shame, I can't remember off the top of my head when he got married. But he did oh, they it. all blend into one in the end. But the, yeah. the point is, they're all trying to spit a baby out as soon as possible. Yes. Now that there's this and gaping hole in the succession. Cambridge, yeah. So the Duke of Cambridge gets the first child out, George, future um, commander in chief of the British forces, in April, I think, eighteen. 18- 19. Edward and well, Victoire, Leopold's sister, they right. managed to they managed to um, get Victoria born, as it were, on in June 1819. Right. They so 
because Leopold, because Edward is older than Duke of Cambridge, therefore Victoria's ahead. Right. Despite being female, and also, she's still one, ahead. And also she's born in England. Ah. Leopold says it was a great advantage to Victoria. Definitely. Now, of course, Leopold's feelings towards about the birth of his niece are mixed. Mm. Of course, he's delighted that his sisters had a baby, but he finds it hard to to deal with this fact. And again, it's one thing that I mean, it's a central fact of Victoria's life, and I do not know she never consciously acknowledges this. Is that Charlotte's death led to Victoria's birth? Right. Right. Um, I've asked. I mean, I have. I have. I've asked the biographer of Victoria about this, whether she actually knows, whether he's come across anything. He says no, when she must have known, but there's no... She never acknowledges the connection. I've never seen it. I've just no. I've just seen, I think she was raised to, raised as the heir. Yeah. She was the heir and it was her place and it didn't matter what had happened before because it's like, it's all this God's will stuff, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And, but I mean, she, you know, she does, she does write to Leopold later on, please tell me about Charlotte. And she's sort of, be rather sort of sentimental about no, the terrible tragedy of, of Charlotte's death. I mean, Victoria loved death, so that that, that was nice. Like um, morbidly, wasn't it? It was like, yeah. tell me all about the funeral you went to. What did they do? And what music yeah. did they play? It's like, it's creepy. Yeah, they, I mean, they, they loved it. And yeah. I think it's part of, this is part of the actually learned behaviour from Leopold. I mean, again, I, but I don't think she would just, I don't think he would have been the only source of that. But it's it's curious. So anyway, back to Leopold. Leopold is present at Victoria's christening. He writes, says, okay, well, you know, it was, I coped, basically, he says. But um, this is where things get interesting again. Victoria's father has no money. So he goes to Sidmouth in Devon and on en route catches a cold, which develops into pneumonia. So, and in 22nd of January, 1820, he dies. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So Leopold's sister is left with a six-month-old baby. Right. And, um, you know, and, you know, the husband just died without, you know, pretty much in pretty straightened, again, by raw standards, straightened circumstances. Leopold um, writes to Leopold, um, then goes down to Devon to pick them up. And this 
channels into a very, very important part of Leopold's persona, the rescuer. Ah, interesting. Um, and this is his real bonding moment, I think, with Victoria. And, you know, I mean, again, but the rescue thing comes again and again. He rescues Belgium. He's always, he rescues, um, um, he's always trying to see, he sees himself as a sort of um, jack of all trades, master of all. Um, he's always trying to, again and again, he's always boasting about, well, I, I um, and again, later on, with when Victoria is very much under the, under the cosh, well, the influence of Sir John Conroy. Right, right. Leopold again sees himself very much as a rescuer. Right, right. Um, but we get really, um, I think his relationship, and he does try to sort of, he does help out financially. He does put them up at Claremont. Indeed, Victoria always goes to Claremont on her birthday. Mm. What's his relationship like with um, Conroy, who obviously is the mother's lover and implants himself yeah. in and wants all the power? Do they clash? Yeah, they do clash. Um, uh, uh, to begin with, to begin with, he finds Victoire, his sister, very needy and is only too happy to have somebody vaguely competent who right. can sort things okay. out. Right. Yeah. But um, Conroy starts to get ideas about his station. Hmm. And he starts claiming he's related to the royal family. He thinks, yeah, he thinks he's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, he does. And again, there's a confrontation at Ramsgate in 1835 when Victoria's ill with typhus and Conroy tries to get her to sign thing. Um, Leopold, Leopold has actually, Leopold just visited. And I think he probably did put, a, put some steel into Victoria. But again, um, but I think Leopold's partly responsible for Victoria's self-image of having an unhappy childhood. Oh, interesting. But he always refers to he refers to Conroy as a sort of Mephisto. Is right. Well, he, he as well. It's not just him. Um, no. It's Augusta as well. But there is this whole sort of feeling as she's getting towards 18, isn't there, that she yeah. needs to get out of this household, that this is yes. destroying her mental health and yeah. she's not safe with him. Yeah. And um, she will be, after all, queen. And yes. so, you know, she should not be subject yeah. to such a man. Yes. Yeah. But I think I think it's interesting though with with Leopold is that he reinforces Victoria's image as an, as a grown up, ah, right of her life, which means therefore that he is the sort of king over the water, right as it right. were. Um, right. Now that's actually the wrong expression to use because that that's just trying to supplant her. But he's a sort of he is the sort of king in a mountain, right. He's ready. I mean, he sends Stockmar over, doesn't he? To, yes. to and she needs him. To be fair, she needs someone. She has Melbourne yeah. too, but she needs someone to guide her through the early part of her reign. Well, definitely. Um, he's very careful not to go over himself. Right. Yeah. Right. Stockmar sent over on her about the time of her 18th birthday, mm -hmm. and Leopold then butters up Melbourne. Right. Uh, because Leopold, Leopold knows. Leopold knows that he can't have the same daily access. That, that Melbourne has no, but he knows that the no, prime ministers come and go. Absolutely, um, and he's known Melbourne since eighteen fourteen. Mm -hmm. So Melbourne gets sort of love bombed, right? As happens to most British statesmen, right, right. Um, during clever. Leopold's life, so you go yeah. very, very clever, Leopold. To yeah guide and maintain some semblance of power without overstepping yeah. and making his niece feel like he's 
you know, he's taking things on himself that he shouldn't be because she's queen. And yeah. also because he is at this point, you know, he, he is he is technically still a foreigner. Yeah. And so it's rather subtle of him. Yeah. Now, how does it is it Leopold who who you think is directly responsible for Albert? Um, directly, but not originally. Right. OK. Um, tell, tell us more was, about that. OK. Once Albert had been, once Albert was, Albert was a few months younger than Victoria. Right. Um, right. When, so when, when he was born on the 26th of August, 1819, and also now, which is the sort of schloss outside Coburg, and right. his grandmother, who was Leopold, and obviously Leopold and Victoire's mother, mm-hmm. a woman called Auguste, sort of, Clapped her lips of glee and said, "Oh right!" You know, she says almost in her diary straight away, "Oh right!" And then he can marry the little girl in England, can't he? That's very funny. Yeah, uh, you know, those of us who you know, come across domineering grandmothers know that it can be you know, rather difficult to gain. Say, I mean, she dies in eighteen thirty-one. Mm-hmm. But right. you know, it's, it's, it's very much it's very much predetermined. Right. Interesting. Okay. Um, to that degree, I, I think. I mean, obviously, there never was a sort of Coburg plan. Mm-hmm. Right. And but yeah, but I think and please forgive me for using this expression. Dynasticism was in their DNA. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Uh, no, it's just what they did. Right. And I think the ideas of consanguinity had weren't that weren't particularly well developed at that stage. Right. He doesn't just stop there either, does he? There's more oh, matchmaking. No. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um well, I, I, I mean, my argument is actually the greatest match he made was with his second wife, Louise. Mm. Tell, um, us, tell us about that. Well, he's become king of the Belgians, right, in 1831, after the Belgian Revolution of 1830, mm. and the best way for him to guarantee stability in that region was for him to marry the, the daughter of the king of the French, Louis Philippe. Ah. Right. Um, Because, uh, again, Belgium was neutral, as we all know. Exactly. Um, But I think there's this this temptation to think, oh, Germany must be the threat to Belgium because of 1914. Hmm. No, most people who weren't French were worried about France invading Belgium. Of course. There's a a Napoleonic precedent. Yes. There as well. Um, And a good way of sort of soft power way of preventing this was for Leopold to marry Louise. Right. It was also, I mean, it helped that he was also an old friend of the king. Mm-hmm. They've both been living in England at the same time. Right. Quite similar personalities. But so Louise, Louise is basically sort of sacrifices herself for Leopold. There's some mm-hmm. quite, she doesn't, she grows to love him mm. and he grows to love her. But it's, it's obviously not the same fire and passion. That you get with um, him and Charlotte. Mm. I don't. I, I think. I think Leopold and Charlotte were sexually compatible. Mm. I rather think. Uh, whereas Louise is very, very different. Sort of very, very differently made. The um, very, very different sort of nature. And she writes to her mother, and he keeps on trying to hug me. <laughs> uh, it's like. You know, um, he says nice things, but only, uh, 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 it's, it's painful because this is a woman who is yeah. over 20 years younger than him. 
Uh, right, and he's forty-one, which at he's this forty-one. Point... It, it, it it doesn't. I mean, this happened a lot at the time, but it's still it, yes, it, it, it's painful. Yeah. She, um, she's produce... uncomfortable, and yeah, yeah it's no, really they, too old for her. No, she's not. She's not a sexual being. Yeah, certainly not with Leopold. Yeah. No, and no, but they, they they managed three children. Mm, right. But after, um, I can come off that later, perhaps. But yes. So thing is, the Orleans dynasty had come. Mm. Of which Louise was a member, came to came to the throne in France in 1830 through a revolution. Right, of course. And they are in search of legitimacy. Absolutely. Yeah. So Leopold becomes a sort of marriage agent. So it's he who tries to negotiate with the Habsburgs to mm. marry Louis Philippe's son, Ferdinand. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but two of his he has one nephew and one niece, both marry of his Coburgs, marry into the Orleans family, mm. and so that's Clementine, who is Louise's sister, marries Leopold's nephew. Are you keeping up? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we might need a chart later yeah. on, but so okay. far so good. Um, yes, and um, yeah, marries Auguste, and they eventually produce um, the kings of Bavaria of uh, Bo- Bo- Bulgaria, Foxy mm-hmm. Ferdinand. Right. It's a product of that marriage. You also get um, the Duc de Nemours um, married um, Victoire, who was Leopold's niece, mm-hmm. um, a very sort of quite a sort of sexy woman whom Leopold fancies. <laughs> a bit cringe. Um, again, very cringe. Yeah. Because he writes a letter about, about, about it to um, Nemours' brother saying, Nemours a bit of a virgin, isn't he? Mm. You know, he's got, a, he's, he's got this sex bomb. I mean, yeah. this is this is this is her uncle writing about it. It's like, um, um, so, so he's very much involved with creating this sort of dynastic, this sort of dynastic network. Interesting. With usually sort of liberal German Protestant, right? Families with the Orleans with the Orleans dynasty. Um, he's also. I mean, he much, much later on, um, he's involved. We sort of he doesn't necessarily arrange the marriage of Victoria's son Bertie, mm. Mm. Honor, but but of course it's not surprising that the the engagement happens at the Palace of Larkin outside Brussels. Yeah. So and he writes he's very very detailed instructions about who needs to stay where and who goes where. So he's very much a sort of um, stage manager, interesting director um, for that. Um, He's always sort of. I mean, obviously, you get these various. He he also arranges for his nephew Ferdinand to marry the Queen of of Portugal. Right, right. Fat mm-hmm. Marie, as he chivalrously calls her, and <laughs> um, yeah. again, but that that was actually what what's interesting about that is a dynastic marriage very much arranged on the hop. Mm. But he more says, "Ferdinand, I love you. Go to Portugal, marry her." Is, is that wow? Um, yeah. It's. Nothing like the sort of slow, the slowly, slowly catchy monkey preparation that Albert and Victoria have. Hmm. Interesting. So his his impact, um, you know, because, of course, by the time the, you know, by the time the the, uh, you know, Victoria's son, the Prince of Wales. Well, not really then, I guess. By the time he gets married, you know, um, Leopold is getting on. 
Yes. And um, I know he lives to about 1865. Yes. So what, what happens with all of this matchmaking and so on? Yeah. Um, what, what, what are the last few years of his life like? Is he happy? Is he, no. you know, no. no. Well, he's no. Old man. I think it's also his, well, also his last, last few great matches, of course, is um, Evil Leopold, marries um, Marie Henriette. Ah, yes. Uh, and his daughter Charlotte marries Maximilian, the emperor, oh, who becomes emperor of Mexico. Right, and that doesn't go well. Doesn't go well though. What about Stephanie? Stephanie's the daughter of. Just, this is the poor one that's rendered infertile after one kid by that idiot heir of Franz Joseph, yes. who then goes and kills himself. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, that's all. Right, yeah. Yeah, but that, that that marriage happened after Leopold's death. Ah, okay. It's quite a long way in advance, but it, it's part of, it's a sort of legacy of Leopold's matchmaking. I mean, the idea that the Coburgs are married to the Habsburgs is quite, does show how how far they've established themselves by the, 80, by the 1850s. Yeah. The 18, 1830s, that would not have been... Right, not possible at yeah, all. Yeah, so it really shows, I think, the impact of 1848. Right. Um, yes. Which was Belgium shows itself to be very sort of stable. Yes, that's right. The other dynasties. Um, so at the end, of, the last years of his life are quite melancholy. He becomes mm. very, very, um, and I think ultimately he is an introvert. He becomes mm. very isolated. Mm. He prefers not to be seen. He suffers from 1859 onwards with very painful bladder stones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, in, by that's a pleonasm. They are very painful. but um, And... I mean, to an extent that when he so he gets um, he gets um, treated by a French doctor Civial who invented a lithotrite. Oh right, okay, yeah. Urethra, urethra, mm -hmm. and that by that means to be crushing. Right. Yeah. Stones um, again without anesthetic. Yeah. Is, exactly. um, excruciatingly painful. Excruciatingly painful. Um, mm -hmm. And then, I mean, such is his pain that he can't sleep. Lying down, he has to be wedged between two two mattresses, Ugh. standing up. So it's a sort of bedtime crucifixion, um, and he basically sorted out by a chap called by called Thompson, mm. who manages to crush most of them. You can actually, if you go to the Welcome Collection in London, you can see the crushed kidney stone, a uh, bladder stone. Love um, the Welcome in winter. Hang on, we're going to see that in the summer. Yeah, it's right next to Napoleon III's bladder stone, which is like a sort of golf ball and uncrushed. Wow. Um, yeah. But Thompson, but the, well, the, the interesting thing is there's a legacy of this, because Thompson um, made an accidental discovery because he used an instrument which hadn't been used before. And mm. Leopold didn't suffer from fever afterwards. Ah. Thompson okay. put two and two together and thought, oh, there weren't any germs on it. So this is this is the same. So this is the same. So it's about the same time at this. The same. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, that's roughly about the time that Lister. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, so Thompson, in his own way, comes to the sort of same same conclusion at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but he's sort of, I think also, but he's very very. You know, he spends a lot of time on his own. I mean, one quite comic thing that was recorded um, is that he got he was he visited Victoria towards the end. Yeah, and he was just so sweet on her. Of course, like, Victoria's bustling in to come and talk to him. Yeah. Um, and she, the only person there was a fellow sovereign mm. who had the sort of right to do that. Um, 
and because he'd become a bit of a sort of famous five uncle Quentin by that stage. Mm. And he just couldn't, you know, so but he, had to, he had to put up with Victoria being sort of, um, no, Victoria making sort of social demands on him. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, because Albert, at this point, Albert has been gone and she has fully embraced. Albert's gone, yeah. I mean, Albert, I mean, he embraced her widowhood. And, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean her. I mean, yeah, I mean her bereavement is the most important bereavement ever in the whole history yes. of humanity. Yes. Um, you say that, but she's more sad when Disraeli dies. She actually says that's the worst one ever, and I'm like, mm, actions would suggest. Yeah. yeah. I, I think there's well, I think there's, there's probably a bit of sort of um, bereavement inflation. <laughs> yeah, on, really. a bit of drama yeah. queening going. Yeah, on, oh, definitely. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, she she was. Um, uh, the thing is also, I mean, Leopold himself, though, I mean, there are certain habits which lingered on. For example, in Claremont, he, Charlotte's coat was kept in the same place. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, and, I, I hope that Victoria was having rampant sex with Disraeli, with John yeah. Brown, with the Indian <laughs> servant. I'd fuck it. <laughs> She's a widow at 41. She wasn't dead. No. She liked sex. She had died kids. She loved sex. I hope she had them all. In the most filthy way imaginable. Yeah, um, well, she probably didn't discuss that with Leopold, though. But um, no. anymore. I mean, I think again. I think that, yeah, yeah. Le Victoria's approved. I think is an idea which is I hope has been blown out of the water. Yeah, I I tried with my biography not. in that book last year. Yeah, <laughs> it's just she was no. Um, there's no way in which. Uh, I'd like her, her, um, I don't know if you would have even called him an obstetrician, but the doctor looking after her when she was pregnant the first yeah. time was just like, stop talking to me. I don't want to know all the details. Yeah. Woman. <laughs> it's uncouth. Yeah. It's just, I, mean, I mean, I think the Leopold's worry about sex was VD. Of yeah. course. Well, because. Well, his, yeah, his, his, yeah, his, his nephew. nephew his right. Nephew Ernest, right. And he says, well, there was certainly, um, well, it's VD and scandal. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes. and so he's much, he's pretty, he's not, I mean, it's quite, it's quite funny the way he talks about it. He's discussed with Victoria, that, well, Ernest got involved in certain activity. It's always, right. I mean, I think, I mean, the euphemisms always make it funnier anyway, but they always, do. They do, definitely. Um, this need to control behavior. No, he's, he, he, so with, with Albert, um, I mean, Kate Williams thinks that Stockmar got Albert initiated mm. in Italy. Again, mm. um, we don't know. I mean, it's just we get yeah. Albert, him writing to Albert and say, "Well, you know, you, if you go to Italy, you be made a man." You know, we, yeah, we, we just don't. Um, again, he's not the sort of thing you'd sort of write, no, dear diary. Yeah, no, um, no. You do if you're the Duke of Windsor. You complain <laughs> that the prostitutes were ugly and no one could get a boner on your first brothel visit in Paris. Yes, he was. Let's not talk about charming. It. Charming. Yeah, yeah he was a. <laughs> I see. That. But I think yeah. So he's. But the thing is also he does actually have he does Louise though. D Stops having conjugal relations really after about eighteen forty. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, she had a difficult birth with um her Charlotte, with their Charlotte. Right. And right. Leopold takes a fancy to a lady called Arcadie. Right. And right. You know, she's very quickly married off to um her her Maya, who is the um man in charge of the stables. I can't, I 
can't remember the word actually for forgive me um well stable master whatever the word uh, he's very quickly and uh, leopold persuades his nephew ernest to give uh, maya as a coburg barony right to sort of um, provide cover for this yeah but i mean the, the coat of arms is quite interesting because it's half it's um it's half a lion and half a St. George's cross, but as in the Greek. Oh, that's interesting. As in the Greek yeah. flag. Mm -hmm. um, let it go, it... Leopold. Let it go. You turned it down. <laughs> he wants to hang on to it. Yeah, that's that's very funny. I mean, yeah. So, but they, 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 they've, they've got a descendant. So, so they both, um, the von Eppinghovens. Um, they then had children, et cetera, et cetera. And there's, there's a Belgian right. genealogist who's traced them all over the world. Too. Right, right. So they do, in fact. So one would one would hope that that brought him some happiness. Yes. You know, because as, as you said earlier, he does seem to have been someone who enjoyed women. Um, yeah. You know, and, and, and sort of various women pop up at different points. You know? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, I mean, obviously, paintings always exaggerate and they make you look much much better than you are but yeah. i was interested to see that a number of paintings of him that you know even even if you take into account the fact that they might be covering up a myriad of flaws is that he's not half bad looking you know no. he's pretty you know he seems relatively attractive yes and, and you know as as you were saying you know he he apparently has some sort of a gift with the ladies yeah yeah so i would imagine that late in life like that yes well i think also yeah, I mean, so I'm interrupting. Forgive me. No, no, um, no. Go ahead. You're, you're, you're the guest. I think um, certainly as a young man, he was, you know, face of standard, good looks, right. strong bone structure, right. Um, I mean, there's some of there's some of the photographs, the daguerreotypes of him in the 1850s and 60s. Right, right. I it's devastating. That. It's a sort of, but it's like sort of, it's rather, it's rather like sort of Graham Southern's um, portrait of Churchill. I mean, yes. As Simon Sharma said, it's a magnificent wreck. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think also, you know, he was. I mean, I think, I think, as a lover, um, he wasn't. A, he he wasn't a sort of bra into braggadocio. He wasn't sort of. It wasn't machismo. Mm, yes. Much. It's, it's sort of attention to little details. Mm, I'll give mm. you one example, though. It's about Victoria. Right. Um, but I think this is very much sort of him on the softer side. She was once staying in Belgium, I think, or he bought some biscuits over. He said, oh, I like these biscuits. Mm. So every month, the British Embassy in Brussels has given some biscuits to send over in a diplomatic bag. Yeah. So, Victoria. Yeah. So, 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 so he sort of dotes. Right. The attention to detail, yeah. the sort of remembering yeah. of the small touches yes. that, you know, that, that, that were important. Yes, very yeah. much so, yes. So I, I did see an image of the rather the rather astonishing um, you know funeral procession for him. So he does yes. he does ultimately die in 1865. At which point he's lived to a fairly venerable old age because yes. that would be yes. 1875. Yes. So, so when he when he dies, what is what is the reaction of the Belgians? What's the reaction of you know he's been king at that point for you know for quite some time. Yes. Are they are they bereaved? Are they indifferent? What what? How do you what sort of a other than you know the the, the appalling we won't speak about yeah. Leopold II, but other yeah. than that, what um what was the reaction? The reaction. Well, I think again, he was. I think he's very much respected, mm -hmm. um, rather than loved. Mm. 
I think he has become a bit of a sort of come a bit come a, a fixture, right? Um, and I think the the great the, the the other thing is also that this was that he did say that you know without Belgium, no, without me, Belgium couldn't exist. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, one Belgian historian, Elsevita, said that well, that shows really what a fatuous old fool he was. And <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, I think yes. And I'm going to be very annoying here, and I say yes yeah. and no. Yes, he is being fatuous. Yeah, he was mm-hmm. no, he was being a sort of humble, not not even humble bragging. No, he was bragging about his right. importance. But yeah. yes, the thing is, without the crown, without the monarchy, Belgium would not have been allowed to. Could, Belgium in the eight, in the eight, from the 1830s could not have been a republic. Right. Well, not only that, but just going on to the next. Yeah of 80 years of Belgian history. They have one yes. of the most sparkling economies in the world. Yes. Uh, they, he, the country itself before World War One was yes. doing damn well. Yes. I and mean, also, I mean, a lot of, obviously, you know, with the Congo, is was one, no, money from the rubber industry from the 1890s onwards is one reason. But Belgium is an industrial powerhouse from the 1830s onwards. Their yeah. industry yeah. was, in, on the eve of World War One. Yeah. they are, making more money than america because of yeah. the american civil war yeah. beating the american economy yeah. down they're like yeah. it's the railways isn't it it's producing yeah. the rolling stock they have the most yeah. dense network of railway lines on the planet it's all railway yeah i mean dippold himself was out there when the first railway is opened between brussels and mechelen mm. on the 5th of may 1835 a lovely locomotive called l'elephant the elephant which you can now see at the um at um Schabek. Hmm. Yeah, Railway World Museum. It's a wonderful place. So, I mean, he he loves railways because he's a traveller, right? Of course. Um, and again, he's one of the very few, these days. You know, we we can just pop on Ryanair EasyJet or whatever, and or wait fifty hours in Eurostar. But we can, we are able to travel. You know, we're able. Which he was one of the few people at the time who did travel so much, right? Right. And the British minister, who didn't have an ambassador in his time, made a joke, which. I would like to make the title of my book, but I think it said, well, Leopold's throne rests on casters. Ah, right. Yeah, I would like to use that as a title, but casters is a bit slightly obscure word. But he's right. always yeah. going to England. He's always going to Paris, especially before 1848. He's always going to watering places like Wiesbaden. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or later on, North Italy. So he's, he's, just, he's always gadding about. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Any thoughts on Leopold you want to leave leave our listeners with before we end? All I can say is this is the, this is the I think this is a fascinating life. Not also not not also simply um, because of the sort of events he lived through, because but also uh, I think it's, it's very he's one of the few people he's somebody who leaves a huge amount on paper mm. Of, mm. of insight, not always intentional, right and. He's so, he's something so very much. I mean, we do get a real insight into the day day running a day to day life of a head of state. Also, because his correspondence with Victoria is about yeah. something that's one to two thousand letters, yeah. and you just don't really well. I can't think of any correspond correspondence with two heads of state, possibly between the sort of kings of Norway of um, Norway and Denmark. But I, I've got no idea what the correspondence looks like. Even I, no, <laughs> life's too short. But no, so so we 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 know an all. There's there's a heck of a lot to know about him. 
And I think also the 19th century was the first century really in which you get long careers. Yes. Had them beforehand, but really this is the period of Metternich, Wellington, Gladstone, Mr. Gladstone, and I think Leopold's among them. And it's, it's that longevity, which I think makes, which makes it so interesting. Great. Thank you. So um, I'd like to say thank you today to, to our guest, Christopher Greiber, um, whose who's new book on Leopold I. Do you have a timeline, Christopher, at this point, an idea um, when we might get to get to actually read it? I would love to be able to say, unfortunately, I do a full time job. So it's very much the remains of the day. I, I, I have both Alex and I have great sympathy for that. Yes. Um, and uh, well, we will uh, perhaps check back with you further on. Yes, okay. When you get closer to publication date, yeah. see how it's going. Um, yeah. I'm sure that our listeners at History Hack would uh, would love to read it. And thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating discussion about Leopold. We've okay. greatly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.